Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading Patricia Sanjin Tells Her Own Story by Patricia Sanjin with permission of Ten of Those Publishing Company. And we are on Chapter 3, The Swiss Interlude. People who have read Treasures in Snow often ask me whether I've ever actually lived in Switzerland. The answer is yes. When I was seven years old, my mother took the unusual step in those days of transplanting us all for a year to a tiny village in Montreal, Oberlin, and sending us to the village school to learn French. Great Granny died when I was five, and my father, after spending some time in England, left for a year to lead Bible schools abroad. In her childhood, my mother had had a dearly loved Swiss nanny named Elsie, and over the years they had kept in touch. Elsie lived in a village square of Renault and rented chalets. Life and chalets were cheap. The exchange was good and schooling was free. My mother decided to take the plunge and Granny came along too. It was a difficult journey. We were mostly seasick and in Deplat, Oliver, age five, disappeared. His frantic mother finally located him on the roof of a very dirty train, smeared with black grease and eagerly inspecting the little lights through the holes in the roof, along with an equally black and greasy French porter. Oliver had seen an irresistible little ladder and followed him up, and the porter was delighted to welcome him. However, we arrived on a glorious autumn day. The chalet stood at the top of the steep hill above the river valley. Through the open window, we looked across the mountainside opposite where the beech trees flamed like a bright torches amid the dark pines, and away to the left rose higher mountains with their eagerly sprinkling of snow. The air smelt of freshly dug earth and the cows and the pine sap, and Elsie received us like long-lost grandchildren, squeezing us lovingly against her voluminous gray apron. It was a blissful beginning to a golden year. I had never been to school before, and I was unfortunate in my teacher. Hazel and Farnham, aged 9 and 10, were put in the second class with a stern but a reasonable master. But the woman who taught the first class of 7- and 8-year-olds was a terror. Soon after we left, she developed a serious mental illness and died in a psychiatric hospital, so she was probably severely disturbed during my year in school. She would beat screaming children unmercifully and drag them to the front of the room by the lobes of their ears. The little girl who sat next to me was permanently blue around the ear. But as far as I know, no one complained. I cannot remember whether I told my mother about these goings-on or not, or whether she believed that when in Rome you did as Rome did, but in my case she left it to me. However, I was the only foreign child in the class, and to begin with I knew not a word of French and Mademoiselle knew not a word of English, so we held each other in slight awe. I never dared to misbehave in her class, and she never got further than flicking her cane in my direction and licking longingly at my ears. Only once was there a real protest. The children would bury their heads in their arms as she went by, but one boy accidentally looked up and caught the cane full across his cheek and had to take two stitches at the local hospital. As far as I know, the parents did not object to the cut, but they objected to the hospital bill. To our intense excitement, the police arrived in class and Mademoiselle had to pay five francs. Being the first foreigners ever to reside in the village, we were bullied to begin with, and I remember being stoned in the ravine where I was playing and going home covered with bruises. But we gave as good as we got, and it was Oliver, age five, who finally routed the arch-bully, age about ten. He sauntered through the chalet one afternoon and stood rather uncertainly on the threshold. 
After a pause, he remarked, Mummy, I think you had better go and look at Amma. I've just killed him. Amma recovered, but he never attacked again. In a short time, we were all good friends and chattered as easily in French as in English. It was a sheer beauty of the place, and our freedom to enjoy it had made that year so memorable. Almost as soon as we arrived, the children were giving a week's holiday to collect firewood, and we spent hours in the dim, pine-scented forest collecting cones and branches for the stove in the front room, which had been our only source of heat during the winter. Here, crimson brambles lit up the gloom scarlet toadstools, grew in clumps and gardens of emerald moss, and busy squirrels leaped in the boughs overhead. To me, it was a new magic world, and I never wanted to go indoors, and then the snow fell. School started at 7 a.m., and our chalet was much further up the hill. We would set out half asleep. Hazel and Farnham, on rough wooden skis, constructed from a slat of barrel, and I muffled up to my eyes on a tiny sled. I suppose there was a dark, rainy morning, but in memory the moon was always shining, casting blue shadows on the snow, and the stars were always blazing. My mother would give me a kiss, and a push, and away I would go, steering skillfully through the great frosty silence with an icy nose until I met up with the other little sleds and the spell was broken and then Christmas unlike our Christmas in England this was chiefly a religious festival and presents were not a great feature but Christmas Eve made up for everything when the whole village and those from outlying districts would arrive by the dozens on great family sleds straight from the milking and we would all surge into the warm brightness of the church, enjoying the smell of polished wood, cow boots, and pine sap, the Christmas tree having been brought straight from the forest. The school children sang their carols, and the old pastor preached his sermon, and I sat and gazed at the picture above the pulpit of the Good Samaritan, kneeling on a very Swiss road beside the wounded man, and a large sympathetic St. Bernard dog all ready to assist. Then the sermon was over, and all the children hurried forward to receive an orange and a gingerbread bear with white icing paws and eyes. I thought mine was exquisite, and I decided to keep it forever. Then the south winds blew up from the valley from the lake, and the cows grew restive in their stalls, and the snow began to melt. We were not allowed to climb at this time of the year because of the real danger of avalanches, but we went far enough to find the flowers pushing through the drifts, their triumphant purple heads melting the ice by the warmth of their germination. Then came sheets of pink flowers and yellow oxlips on the bare yellow patches below the swollen streams, and then that glorious day when parents were warned to keep small children indoors because the cows were to be let out. Through the open doors they galloped, half-blind with months of dim captivity, drunk and crazy with liberty and sunshine. They leaped and they mated and tossed their tails and, and back legs in the air. Spring had arrived. School holidays were unpredictable. They depended entirely on the weather. We would all arrive in the classroom one morning and the teacher would look out the window and said, It's a good day, she would announce. Go home for a week and dig potatoes. Or for three days to take the cows up to the mountains, or for six weeks to make the hay, or to collect firewood. And off we would all scamper as wild and liberated as the cows. On long summer evenings or on Saturday, we would wander at will, sometimes as a family, sometimes on our own. We climbed the mountains that framed the valley, sometimes spending the night in the hayloft or the high chalet, or tackling the final crest just before dawn. Rare alpine flowers grew on those crests in early summer. 
After the steep scramble, we would fling ourselves down on the summit and watch snowy peak after snowy peak catch fire as the sunrise caught them. We were on top of the world, and the whole of Switzerland range seemed to lie before us. It was just one mountain we never attempted. Mount Corion rose across the valley, a great rocky baston where climbers were known to have fallen to the deaths. Farum and I were never tired of making up stories about it. Tales of frozen corpses, bottomless abysses, and haunted crevices, and nothing would have persuaded us to go further than the lower slopes. But Farnham's two best friends were sons of the mountain guide, and they rushed excitingly into our home one day. Papa's taking us up to the mountain tomorrow, they shouted. He says you can come too. Their father was just behind him and had addressed my mother. We shall be roped, he explained, and we shall start at 4 a.m. Would you like Farnham to come? Our mother was delighted. She knew Farnham would be perfectly safe with a mountain guide, and she thought it would be a wonderful introduction to real mountaineering. But she missed the flicker of fear in her little boy's eyes. He was two years younger than his friends, and that mountain was an object of terror to him. But he was a brave child, and he said nothing. He went off to bed early. His rum sack was packed and his nailed boots laid out ready. But he could not sleep. Lying there in the dark, death seemed very near. He would slip and fall, and then he wasn't quite sure. He just felt desperately lonely and afraid. Then the patient teaching he had received all his life came alive. The forgiveness of sin, the certainty of heaven, and the everlasting life suddenly became very real. And with this reality, common sense prevailed. The one who had died to open heaven was alive and very near to keep him safe. He slipped out of bed, knelt down, and gave himself into those keeping hands and slept soundly. I was asleep when he left, but I would never forgotten his return. Late in the afternoon, he burst into the house, dropping with tiredness, but his brown eyes were alight with happiness, his arms full of edelweiss. And his arms full of edelweiss. His joy was contagious and overflowing, and I thought it was because he had climbed the mountain, and I burned with envy. Not until many years later did he tell everyone that there was much more to it than that. It was a slightly hazardous existence, but my mother accepted hazard as a part of our growing up process, and I only once ever saw her really nervous. A little girl named Nora was staying with us while her parents were abroad, and we were all shinning up delightfully up a high beech tree. I came slithering down and landed beside my mother with a bump. She was sitting with closed eyes and folded hands. What are you doing, Mummy? I asked curiously. I'm just praying that if any one of you falls, it won't be Nora, she said calmly. Yet when the real hazards came, the angels were at hand. It was a particularly cold winter that year, and the steep slope outside our chalet leading straight into the main road was a sheet of ice. It was so dangerous that it had been railed off by the local policeman just above our front door, and we all had to go out at the back and use the gentler slope to the village. It was very quiet in the house, and we older ones were at school. My mother was in the kitchen, and John, aged three, was playing happily with his toys in the front room. There was nothing outwardly to account for that urgent prompting, go and see what John is doing. Quite silently, he had opened the front door and managed to dislodge the big sled. Just as she ran out after him, it started down the hill with John sitting astride. It was far too slippery to get any purchase with her feet, so she did the only thing possible. She flung herself across the road and seized his legs. He tumbled off into the ice, and the empty sled went over her and careened on its way. She was terribly bruised, 
but her adventurous little boy was safe. This glorious year came to an end all too soon, although two years later we returned to the same chalet from April till September. But that September we had to go back to dull old England, to streets and houses and shoes and stockings and to schools comparatively devoid of drama and sensation. Yet the memories remained. My best friend, called Annette, and the little boy who broke his leg named Danny, and the utterly beautiful of the seasons, and my adored white kitten named Claus. I never quite got it all out of my system until, years later, I wrote Treasures of Snow. There was a happy sequence when much later on still international films decided to film the book. They wrote to the mayor of the town and asked if they could shoot its authentic surroundings. The first answer was no. A previous film crew had visited the village and done a lot of damage, trampling the hay and leaving the gates open to roaming cows. But they were told the name of the book and the author and the atmosphere changed. The grannies of the village remember the laughing young mother who loved all the children and had made them a Christmas party and everyone rose to the occasion. Old costumes were produced, electrical apparatuses were set up, chalets were opened up in, for interior designs. Their kindness and helpfulness exceeded all expectations, and the reason for it was quite clear. We didn't want another film crew in the village, they explained. Now, this next part is in French, so I'm going to try to translate it for you. But for Madame Saint-Jean, she is good, and she is different. And tomorrow we'll read Chapter 4, School Days. I love you, and I'm praying for you, and I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.